Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, we pray now that you would uh, help us to see our Lord Jesus' greatness and seeing that move us to trust him as he deserves and to follow him in doing all he commands. Help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly and help us to receive this word with faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, diseases cured, hunger satisfied. Whoops, I've got ahead of myself here. Good. Hunger satisfied. It's easy to see, isn't it? While some were hostile to Jesus, many others, whether those who followed him into that remote place or the people of Gennesaret who brought the sick from the whole area, were keen to see him. To have someone who can restore your life to you when you've been sidelined by illness or injury, uh, restore you to being productive and fruitful, to free you from pain, give you sight or mobility, you would make an effort to see that person. And it's also easy to see why what Jesus is doing would raise questions about his identity because it's well outside the normal then and now. And so it's natural to ask who can do these things. Uh, That's a question Jesus is helping his followers to answer as he reveals more of himself to them in the events recorded here, an answer we can share in. But that's not all that's happening in these events. Here Jesus is also deliberately teaching his followers how his identity, who he is, determines how he should be trusted. Now you might be sitting there and hearing that, you know, here we learn who Jesus is and what it is to follow him and be thinking, but why should we be interested? I mean, it all seems so terribly local, going on in a small area of Palestine remote from us and it's all happening so much in the past. Well, three reasons to be interested. Firstly, what we have reported here is true. This is eyewitness testimony. But of course the truth of the events is not really enough in itself to demand our interest, is it? Lots of true things have happened in the past that we just cheerfully don't bother about anymore. Well, secondly though, the gospel is written and circulated because of the conviction this Jesus, whose ministry in that faraway place it describes lives. We're not talking about the identity of a dead historical figure, but one who lives. You may not have that conviction yourself yet, but remember that is the basis on which these stories were recorded, circulated and preserved. Why people still gather week by week to hear them. It's not an antiquarian interest, it's not cultural conservatism, it's because Jesus is a living person who can be known now and not just known, but followed still. And thirdly, what we see here is that his identity is revealed in his interactions with human need, human frailty, a frailty we share. To a differing extent, we know sickness, don't we? I mean, we have in God's common grace hospitals, a healthcare system, devices and drugs, for which we can be so thankful. But there's much we cannot cure and some we can only cure at great effort. 
We know life's sidelined by chronic illness, by the betrayal of a frail body. We know sickness. And we know hunger. Even in our abundance, some still face hunger today. And at the back of our mind, behind concerns about security of employment or demands for government assistance, is the threat of growing, going hungry. We share bodies that are never satisfied, that must return day after day to eat, to stay alive. Oh, and we know, like the apostles in the boat, the exhaustion of battling an uncooperative nature, a nature that can at times overwhelm us. And this sickness, hunger and exhaustion are signs of our frailty and insecurity in a world that is not right, where there's much that threatens to rob us not only of joy and happiness in life, but of life itself. And so we also know, if we will let ourselves feel it, the longing that drove the crowds to Jesus, the longing to be whole, the longing to be freed from wearisome toil, the longing to be secure. Who Jesus is intersects with our need, our deepest longings, and that is a reason to be interested. Whatever you think of the story, whatever you, wherever you are in testing the historicity of the Gospels, to know someone who could heal, who could meet your hunger, not leave you in want, who can rule nature in whose presence it had no threat and who cared for you, you can see that would be good. For the crowds, the poor, the needy, Jesus is that person. But how could that be? Who could Jesus be that he can address, answer their frailty and ours? When Jesus meets the crowds, it says, verse 14, he has compassion on them and heals them. And this healing is a characteristic feature of Jesus' ministry in all the Gospels. One that Peter could he expect his hearers to know. To the crowds at Pentecost, Peter could say, Jesus of Nazareth was attested to you by God with miracles, wonders and signs that God did among you through him. To the Gentile Cornelius living in Caesarea, later he could speak of Jesus as one who went about doing good and healing. References to Jesus' healing are so frequent that we can forget the wonder and power of it. But think for a minute, what would it be like to be lame to be unable to contribute, to feel yourself a burden to your family and then be able to walk, to be blind and then see with all our medicine, we cannot do that, bring wholeness in an instant with a word. But Jesus is so powerful, so powerful that the people of Gennesaret, like the woman with the chronic bleeding, believe that just touching the end of his robe would bring healing. They're convinced that Jesus has overflowing power and wholeness. Now, who can do that, make whole, just with a touch? Now, for readers of the Old Testament, the Jews amongst whom Jesus lived, well, it's actually the one who can bring the wholeness of shalom, of the peace with God that's established when Israel, when the world is no longer under God's judgment, but living in his presence under his reign, when life is restored to the way it was meant to be, the way it was at creation. 
Jesus came preaching the nearness of that kingdom, of that reign of God. And these healings are signs that the kingdom is near because of the presence of God's king sent from God. Jesus heals because he brings God's reign in himself. And Jesus, as you heard, feeds 5,000. Now others in the Old Testament have participated in miraculous feedings. Elisha feeding 100 sons of the prophets from 20 loaves in fulfilment of the word of the Lord and Moses who was associated with the provision of manna to Israel in the wilderness. But it was not Moses who gave the manna. It was God and Elisha's provision can't compare to what Jesus does. Jesus feeds 5,000 along with the women and children who were not numbered And Jesus has no word of the Lord. He just decides to feed them himself and his provision is abundant. They're filled, they're all satisfied and there are 12 baskets of leftovers. Now who can do that? God is the one who is always feeding us, feeding us through the abundant fruitfulness of the creation he sustains. Here Jesus feeds with created things, bread and fishes, multiplying them as God routinely does to satisfy the hungry. This is the creative power of God at work in Jesus, his personal power. Jesus is different from the holy men and the religious authorities the people knew in the present or from their history. He is greater, greater than the greatest prophets, greater than the rabbis, he's greater than all who have come after him, who claim to be prophets. He is personally exercising the power of God on earth, the power of God to sustain life and make whole. So what category could people put him in? How should we think about him? Well, that question is raised even more acutely for his followers because of what they witness next. Jesus has made the disciples go ahead of him in a boat while he dismisses the crowd and then goes up the mountains to pray. And the disciples have been many hours at sea and they've made progress. Yes, they're quite a way out towards the middle, but it's been hard going with the wind, a westerly probably at that time of year, whipping up the sea against them. And then they see a figure walking towards them on the water and they don't know it's Jesus at first because why would they expect to see him walking on the water because let's face it, generally speaking, people don't. So they think it's a ghost. One of the spirits associated with those who drowned that were thought to wander endlessly at sea, all the malevolent night spirits that people believed existed. And so they're terrified. But Jesus reassures them, have courage. It is I, don't be afraid. Now, no prophet is recorded in the Old Testament as walking on water. God alone was spoken of as treading on the waters, the restless sea, a symbol of destructive evil that he conquered in setting his people free. And the disciples knew that. But Jesus walks on water and can command Peter to walk on water and on the water can rescue Peter from drowning, pull him up and out of the sea. And when he gets into the boat, the wind that had been tormenting them ceases. 
recalling for the apostles their earlier experience when Jesus had saved them from drowning in the storm by commanding the winds and the waves to be quiet. At that time they'd said, what kind of man is this, Matthew 8? Even the winds and the sea obey him. But now they worship him and say, truly you are the son of God. Jesus has defied their merely human categories. He's in a league of his own. We're only thinking of him, speaking of him, responding to him as divine, worshipping him is adequate. They confess that he is someone with the power of God, son of God. But even that confession is not the full story. They don't know yet. How Jesus, oh, they know, sorry, that Jesus doesn't fit into their usual categories for someone sent to them with God's message. They know his power, but they don't know yet his purpose, where he fits into the plan of God to save his people. That fuller confession will come in Matthew 16 when Peter, in response to Jesus' question, Who do you say I am? says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter, as a Jew, is saying, you are the son spoken of in Psalm 2, the son who will reign over all nations eternally, the Christ who will bring the end of this present evil age and usher in the age to come, the king who will rescue God's people. You are that son. Yet even then, we quickly learn that people and the other, Peter and the other disciples do not really understand. Uh, Jesus greatness, the greatness of the salvation he's come to bring, the salvation of God, the fact that he's come not to bring an earthly kingdom but God's kingdom, to bring not temporary healings of those who will one day die, not temporary satisfaction of our hunger in those who will hunger again, not a brief reprieve from the forces of an indifferent creation. They don't understand the greatness of the salvation, the rescue Jesus brings, permanent freedom from decay and death, eternal life, where there's no fear of want, no hunger anymore. They don't understand that he is the one who will bring a creation in harmony with humanity, where all threats removed, where in Isaiah's words, the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the little child will put his hand over the snake's den and they won't hurt or harm on all God's holy mountain where the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You see, they don't understand. They don't understand that, that this will be the greatest salvation achieved through what was unthinkable for the disciples, the death of the Son of God at the hands of his enemies. See, when Jesus said to them that it was necessary for him to suffer many things and be crucified and be raised on the third day, Peter said, no, Lord, this will never happen to you. Yet it was that death that would ransom people from captivity to sin, to rebellion against God and its penalty death. It's this death that would bring forgiveness and peace with God, bring eternal life. You see, what we see in the gospel is that the disciples have a growing understanding of who Jesus is. They don't get it all at once. They see you are the son of God, but they don't see all there is to see. 
and Jesus patiently teaches them. Patiently teaches them first to confess truly, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and then to truly know what they have confessed. And that's a work that will go on right to the end of the Gospels when the risen Jesus will stand before them and say, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me and they will again worship him. Worship him now as the glorious Son of God, God with us. You know, seeing that and Jesus' patience is a great encouragement because we don't get Jesus all at once either, do we? You know, by his grace, he brings us, believers, to confess that he is Lord. But that's only the life-changing beginning. We grow as the Lord teaches us what that means through all our lives. Teaches us of his power, not just to raise the dead sometime in the future, but say to break bad habits now. Teaches us of the faithfulness of his promises, for example, We trust in him to provide job or house as we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Teaches us the reality of the depth and extent of his forgiveness as we grapple with our guilt. Teaches us of the goodness of his rule of our lives. Teaches us patiently. And in particular, teaches us what that confession means for our following of him teaches us the lesson over and over again that he teaches the apostles here. So as well as showing compassion to the crowd and in his compassion revealing his greatness, in these two events, Jesus is deliberately teaching his followers what it is to be the follower of the Son of God, one who has the power of God. The disciples Verse 15, initiate the conversation about the crowds and their need to be fed. So they're anticipating the problem, but theirs are only natural solutions. Send them away, solutions that absolve them of any responsibility for providing for them. And the solution's actually probably no solution at all because this is a remote place with only a few small villages around which would have little capacity to feed so many from their available grain supplies. But Jesus makes responsibility for the crowd's need for food theirs. You give them something to eat. Now, the disciples let Jesus know that with their meagre resources, the five loaves and two fish, obedience to his command is plainly impossible. And with this clear command from the Lord, you give them, and this clear observation of their inability to obey his command from their own resources, the stage is set for their learning. Bring them here to me. Jesus takes their bread and fish and multiplies them to meet the need. The disciples see Jesus has more than enough power to multiply their meagre resources to make it possible for them to obey him that what seems impossible for them, Jesus makes possible. You give, verse 16, and then receiving from Jesus, verse 19, the disciples gave. Jesus makes their obedience to his command a reality. And it was not just getting by 
as if Jesus was pushed to the limit of his ability by what he commanded them or by the greatness of the need. There was more than enough. Their lack of resources became an abundance in his hand. So what has Jesus taught them? That he is able to give them all they need to do what he commands them to do and more. That they can turn to him to make their meagre resources more than sufficient to do his will to obey him. And it is that lesson that is reinforced for them all and for us in Jesus' dealing with Peter. On learning that it's Jesus, Peter says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. It's probably better actually to read, Lord, since it's you, command me. See, Peter's not setting a test for Jesus to prove his identity to him and to the others. Peter is wanting to share in his master's power and ministry as a disciple. Just as Jesus has shared with them his authority over unclean spirits and to drive them out and to heal every disease and sickness, as we read in Matthew 10, so that they could conduct ministry in his name as his representatives, Peter, as a disciple, is wanting to share in this activity of Jesus, to do as his master does. So Jesus commands, come. And notice, it is a command. And, of course, we know what happens next. Peter starts coming to Jesus, walking on the water, but then the message of his senses, the power of the wind, the reality of the waves, fills his mind, drives out his confidence in Jesus. He begins to sink. He cries out, Lord, save me. And the Lord does. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand, caught hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? Now let me ask you, what was it that Peter doubted? Well, not who Jesus is, not that Jesus is there, not that Jesus is walking on the water, and not even Jesus' capacity to save him. Lord, save me, he cries. No, he doubted the very thing that Jesus has just taught his disciples. He doubted that where Jesus commands, Jesus can give them the capacity, the ability, the power to fulfil his command. That where he commands, come, the Lord Jesus can make it possible for Peter to obey his command, make possible what is impossible for Peter in himself. That's what he doubted. And why did he doubt? Because the information of his senses, what he was seeing, feeling, was more real to him then than the word of the Son of God. Because he let himself focus on the circumstances of the world around him and not on Jesus. Because he did not trust Jesus enough. (coughs) Our Lord pinpoints the issue. O you of little faith. Peter did not trust Jesus as he deserved to be trusted. Peter's faith was not consistent with Jesus' greatness, did not match Jesus' reality. Jesus is God with us, the one through whom all things were made, including the wind and the sea. They bow to his will, serve him and his purposes. As Jesus' word created them, so Jesus' word 
rules them. And Jesus cares for his people. Just as Peter should not think the Lord Jesus commanded him to do something he was not able to empower him to do, so Peter should not think Jesus commanded him something that was not for his good. Peter was sinking, but his inability to obey Jesus' command and come to him on the water was not because we always sink in water and not because of the fierceness of the storm. Peter was sinking because of his little faith, his doubting that the Lord Jesus could make it possible for him to do exactly as the Lord Jesus had commanded Peter. And brothers and sisters, that is true for our failures to do what Jesus commands us. Jesus has no lack of power. He has no thoughtlessness, no lack of love for his people. What he commands, he commands for our good, and what he commands, he is able to give us grace to do. The problem with our obedience to Jesus' word, whether that is to rejoice always or to forgive, to love, to keep our word, to be faithful in our marriages, to live a sexually pure life. The problem is not his word, his command, even though it might ask of us something we think is too hard, impossible for us. And the problem is not our circumstances. The problem is our lack of faith in our great Saviour. And that problem is in our hearts in our little faith, in our giving greater reality to our circumstances, our weaknesses, than to his word. The problem lies in doubting that the Jesus who commands can give us in our weakness the ability to obey. Now I'm going to come back to that, but let's think first. Why is Jesus so deliberately training his disciples? deliberately teaching them that he can and should be trusted to give them all they need to do his will even when it seems impossible to them. Well, it's because at the end of the gospel he is going to entrust these disciples with a task that is completely beyond them. At the end of the gospel, and these are familiar verses for us, aren't they? The risen Jesus will say to his disciples, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Now think about that. They did not even know who all the nations were. They didn't know their cultures or languages. Oh, but they did know that the nations they knew were idolaters who had no knowledge of the living God. And as they got on with it, they started to realise the cost, the cost Jesus had already spoken of, of being hated by all for his sake, that people would reject them, imprison them, stone them, kill them. Make disciples of all nations? Oh, and who were they? A very mixed group. Not one of them had graduated from the best schools. Not one of them had an unblemished record of faithfulness. And not one of them had a plan for the evangelisation of the world. Nothing would seem more unlikely than that they could do what Jesus commanded them to do. But just as Jesus fed the crowds through the disciples... So he wills to save the world through his disciples 
by sending them out into the world with his gospel. As he takes the little they have, their experience of Jesus, their testament to Jesus in all their frailty, and he makes it by his spirit more than enough to bring all the nations to be his disciples so that he can be the person it is good to know, not just for the needy crowds of Galilee, but for the needy world, for us, oppressed as we are by sin and death. And what the Lord Jesus commanded, he has brought to be. In all the frailty and the inability of his followers, he has made disciples of all nations. We should know that. Look at us from so many different peoples. Look at Warwick and Nat, the Fulani coming to faith. See, brothers and sisters, in training the disciples, Jesus was not just training them. In their training, he is teaching us, all who will believe through their witness, we too are called to trust that the Lord Jesus will be able to give us all we need to do his will, that where what he commands seems beyond our resources, he can multiply our resources to do his will, that where what he commands seems beyond our power, he can make it possible for us in our weakness to do what he commands, whatever the circumstances, however unpromising the environment around us seems to be. Jesus deserves to be trusted as God for whom nothing is impossible, whose word brings into being what it commands and that trust in him should be shown in doing his will. We should know that better than Peter did when we got out of the boat, shouldn't we? I mean, we're on this side of the resurrection. Jesus has made explicit that his is all authority over creation, over death, over the actions of sinful people that just exalted him as saviour of the world, over the forces of darkness, over sickness and death, all authority in heaven and on earth is his. And we have seen the measure of his love and his commitment to his people. He has laid down his life for us. So let's think for a moment about what the Lord Jesus has commanded us to do. Now I've mentioned some of what our Lord commands us already, areas of personal daily obedience, love, forgiveness, thankfulness, control of the tongue, purity. Think for yourself now of where you are challenged in obedience, where perhaps you are making excuses for not doing what you know he's commanded you. And our Lord also gives us commands through his apostles about our interaction with others. You know those commands, not neglecting meeting with others where we're able to meet as we can now, practising the love that covers a multitude of sins, serving one another in love, encouraging one another, using our gifts for the common good to build up one another. Now some of us may be finding these particularly challenging at the moment. We've lost the habit or the confidence to meet with our brothers and sisters or we've lost contact and let misunderstandings develop. But these are commands and the Lord expects us to trust him to give us the grace and strength 
to do what he says. Oh, yes, and the task he has entrusted to the apostles, his first disciples, he is also entrusted to us who have become his disciples through their witness. We are also commanded to make disciples of all nations by preaching the gospel that brings them to confess faith in Jesus as the Son of God and teaching them to do all that he has commanded us, to make disciples here in Australia, no matter how unpromising our secular culture appears to be, and to share in making disciples throughout the world. Think of what the Lord Jesus has commanded us to do and where you might be struggling to live that way. And then recognise where the problem lies in obedience. It is, brothers and sisters, though it might hurt to say it, in our hearts, in our little faith. It's The problem's not with Jesus' commands, which are good, <coughs> and for our good always. And the problem is not in the end in your circumstances, the difficulty of the people you live with, your upbringing, your loneliness, the 24-7 secular propaganda. They're not reasons to falter in doing what Jesus says. They're just the circumstances in which he will show the greatness of his grace in our weakness. And recognising where the problem lies in our hearts, then recognise where the solution starts. Uh, not in changing Jesus' word, somewhat to do. Oh, and not in changing your circumstances. No, no, the solution starts in our hearts too. Repenting of little faith, that we're not trusting our Lord as he deserves. <laughs> Repenting of thinking that our senses, our judgments of, say, the difficulty of something are a more reliable guide to what we should do than his word. That little faith is sin and it should be repented of daily because it dishonours our Lord Jesus. And then growing in faith as under Jesus' patient care we grow in knowledge of him. That's how the disciples grew in faith. That's how we grow in faith. It's a knowledge of him as revealed in the scriptures and a knowledge that, in a sense, we test and prove as we live trusting him, finding his word to be true as we put it into practice. And part of that growing in knowledge of the goodness and greatness of Jesus is remembering what else that is taught here for our comfort. And that is, Jesus didn't let Peter drown. I know it's obvious, but it is so good. He has compassion on those with little faith. Peter, starting and failing, is the one who knew the strong arm of the Lord. As he stood there on the boat, dripping cold, perhaps, you know, the, the butt of comments by his fellow disciples, Peter knew that the Lord had rescued him. He knew Jesus heard him, knew his care. Oh, and yes, he also knew for a moment that he had stood on the sea by Jesus' power. And he knew the problem wasn't Jesus then, but himself and his little faith. And in the experience of having to face his little faith, Jesus grew his faith. 
actually grew his faith in Jesus' care and power just that little bit more. Peter knew Jesus would save him. It is better to be a rebuked and rescued follower than one who never gets out of the boat. It's better to obey and be shown how little your faith is in your faltering obedience than never to try and do what Jesus says because you're afraid of failure or embarrassment. You reckon it's too hard or not the right time or too dangerous. This is someone who can raise the dead. The way we grow is doing what Jesus says and when we fall calling out to him for rescue. He won't let you drown. He doesn't tire of putting you back in the boat. See, it's like the loaves and the fishes. He has abundant power, abundant patience, abundant grace. So think about where you know your Lord's will but are not doing it. The Lord deserves to be perfectly trusted and perfectly obeyed for he is the Son of God His power is more than enough to enable his people to do his will and he loves us with a love that cannot be measured. So abandon excuses for not doing what Jesus says. Overcome fear, get out of the boat, do what he says looking to him and not the discouraging circumstances around you that may be screaming in your ears like the wind on the sea. Keep your eyes on him. He hears, his arm is strong, his grace always enough. So may he be honoured as he is, the Lord with all authority in heaven and earth in our lives. Let's pray. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, we pray in your great mercy that you would move us from having little faith to having greater faith. That we would trust the Lord Jesus to give us the grace and the power to do as he commands. And we would honour him as our loving almighty saviour by cheerfully doing what he says always. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.